It's morning again in America. And under the leadership of President Reagan, our country is prouder and stronger and better. Why would we ever want to return to where we were less than four short years ago? corrupting American politics and the legislative process. Ahead of the midterms in November, Republicans and Democrats spent more than $10 billion on adverts. And in the 2020 presidential campaign cycle, Trump spent $710 million on his campaign, while outside groups backing him spent $349 million. That's more than a billion dollars splashed out just to lose. Where are these sums of money actually going and where is cash best spent? I'm Jacob Jarvis and here to discuss this with me for The Bunker USA is Kyle Farp, Managing Editor of For What It's Worth News, who is an expert on online trends and tactics in US politics. Welcome to The Bunker, Kyle. Thanks for having me. Kyle, in recent political history, what do you think has been the biggest waste of money that you've seen from a campaign? That is a really great place to start. Um, Obviously, (laughs) as a digital native, uh, my answer may be a little predictable. uh, But I would say despite more and more people cutting the cord and no longer watching cable or broadcast television, TV ad spending remains one of the, if not the biggest line item in a political campaign's budget. We're talking like over a billion dollars spent every year on TV advertising that very few people are watching anymore. I think it's super bizarre. I think there's little evidence that TV advertising is any more effective than anything else. Uh, But yet television advertising has the stranglehold on our politics. Are people duped by how much cable TV seems to influence social media? Because Tucker Carlson, for example, it would seem gets most of his views actually on Twitter. Does that confuse people when it comes to where they spend their money? Exactly. It's all part of one large media ecosystem. And so... You know, when campaigns put out a new TV ad, it's also highlighting maybe a new issue or messaging that they'll also pitch to reporters. And so it builds Mm -hmm. a a much larger ecosystem of information that voters are seeing. Um, But just the raw numbers of spending on television is, is just completely off kilter to how Americans receive their information and their political information. Um, There's a lot of reasons for that. I think many operatives who have worked in television advertising and TV consultants have really dominated the industry and they have decades Mm. of relationships with with leadership on campaigns. And so that impacts things. But um, you're going to start to see we say this every cycle, but you're going to start to see less and less market share of television advertising in the campaign budget. Is it because historically there's been these iconic adverts like It's Morning Again in America and that's made people think they can they can redo that and that's just not the way the media works anymore? Yeah, exactly. And and if you think about it, television advertising is also tied to another major component of campaigns, which is traditional polling. And so mm. campaigns would run a television ad and then they would run a poll to see, you know, where voters are going on that issue or whatnot. And then they'd run another ad and then run another poll. And that's how campaigns were run for many, many years. And so you're right. I think people think about those iconic ads that moved the needle way back in the day. Um, Mm. But that's not the world that we live in anymore. Mm. Counter to wasting money, what's been the most astute spend that you've seen lately? Yeah. So the complete opposite of that massive broadcast ad buy 
is kind of person-to-person outreach strategies that we've seen particularly a lot on the Democratic side. Experienced campaign managers and types will tell you that they're most impressed by peer-to-peer efforts that get voters talking to their own families and friends about the campaign. And so I think John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock's campaigns in, in Georgia for U.S. Senate really emphasize this kind of relational organizing get out the vote efforts on platforms like WhatsApp. You know, they're reaching out mm. to different communities and groups of people on those types of apps. Uh, research has shown time and time again that people talking to their friends and in-person outreach are the most effective. And that's not just analog. People do that in the digital space. I mentioned on WhatsApp, but people organizing each other in Facebook groups and in Twitter DM groups. And I think that is probably the most effective way that a campaign can spend dollars to reach voters. Mm, who are the leading people and the leading examples in that? Is it people like Stacey Abrams and AOC? And are Democrats better at that than Republicans? Democrats are definitely better at that than Republicans. But again, a lot of Republican voters just turn out cycle after cycle and our voters have to be mobilized a little bit more. But mm. overall, Republicans do not do this. Republican campaigns are very old school TV focused, direct mail focused, and rely a lot on kind of right wing media to carry their water for them. Why is that? Is that because of the makeup of the people within the campaigns or the people they're trying to target? A little bit of both. Um, Last year in the midterms, the Republican Party had a major issue with candidate quality. They they ran a lot of first time candidates that had never run for office before, people like Dr. Oz or Herschel Walker. And so... Mm. Those campaigns had a lot of inexperienced folks running them, didn't prioritize any type of digital engagement, and uh, relied heavily on Republican outside groups and super PACs, which are a huge part of the campaign ecosystem in the U.S., uh, Mm. to spend tons of money on their behalf. Uh, And so that resulted in the Republican campaigns themselves not doing a lot of organizing or or actual campaigning and leaving it up Mm. to a lot of outside groups that just spent tons of money on TV to reach voters in the hopes of moving the needle. You mentioned super PACs there. Just for a British audience, what exactly is a super PAC and how does that fit into the system of raising money and running campaigns in America? Right. So uh, super PACs are legal sort of nonprofit entities uh, that we have in the United States, political action committees. um, And they are able to spend basically unlimited amounts of money on an election uh, with the caveat that they are not allowed to directly coordinate uh, with the candidate or campaign. So they can, they can spend tons of money, millions and millions of dollars on behalf of candidates and campaigns. They just can't talk directly to them to share messaging and and strategy. Mm. Um, It's a huge problem in American politics. It's insane the amount of money and the amount of, of groups that are um, spending uh, in our ecosystem, but that's that's the world that we live in. Does that disconnect actually remain? Does that work? Can you make a super PAC which is just saying we want Trump and truly believe that they do not speak to the Trump campaign at all? Sure. I mean, for instance, I I was empl- employed by a super PAC in the 2020 presidential election uh, with the purpose of defeating Donald Trump. Right. So we mm. uh, had no idea what the Biden campaign was doing uh, and, and let them speak for themselves. But we really tapped into voters fears and anxieties around a second Trump term. And so mm. uh, there are roles and ways that super PACs can be beneficial to campaigns and, and 
into the election at large. Um, mm. But overall, this massive influx of money in politics, I believe, is a bad thing. And I also think that can- campaigns and candidates are are the best spokesmen for themselves. How is it that the PACs bring the money in? Is it from small donations from the public mainly, or are we seeing big money have big influence, kind of like lobbying, essentially? The majority of, of super PAC fundraising and uh, dark money fundraising comes from a small list of millionaires and billionaires that uh, want to influence politics. And so you're looking at donations and contributions that are in the hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars range. What has changed in the ways that people are fundraising in recent times? You know, not a lot. So on the outside, independent expenditure level, like super PACs, that's a lot of major high dollar donors. Um, On the campaign side of things, political fundraising on both sides of the aisle has become a real scammy industry. And what I mean that email fundraising is one of the most dishonest, uh, widely despised tactics in American politics. You'll receive emails from everyone from Nancy Pelosi to Barack Obama telling you that Mm. if you do not donate $5 to X candidate, then the entire world will end. And that has become (laughs) an accepted uh, practice in, yeah. in politics and it's it's despicable but uh, yeah, i always notice they're very heavy-handed oh of course they tap into all sorts of emotions whether it's fear or shame uh to try and get folks to give five dollars ten dollars twenty dollars to a campaign uh there are a couple exceptions to that rule but but for the most part online political fundraising from grassroots donors is is extremely dishonest and and a major problem uh on the left Campaigns have started to try and and tweak those templates and and try to be a a little, provide a little bit more value in those fundraising asks. On the right, uh, you'll see a major reckoning with grassroots fundraising tactics that have been extremely deceptive. The Trump campaign in 2020 really pioneered dishonest, deceptive, scammy and spammy fundraising tactics to the extent that it's very much dried up the well of donors for Republicans. Mm. In, in 2022, the Republican Party faced a huge problem with sort of a major decline in grassroots fundraising online. And a lot of people blame Trump for that. A lot of people blamed a couple bad actors for really burning through mm. these fundraising lists of voters. Is that an issue of them remaining tied to Trump in that Trump in a way seems like an asset still for the GOP when it comes to name recognition. But as you say, people have felt burnt by him. Is this a a fundamental sort of functional problem as well as a political problem because people just will not want to give him money? I think so. Like he sucks the oxygen out of every room that he is in. Mm. And so whether that's in the digital <laughs> fundraising space or in, in the you know mainstream media, it's a major problem that Republicans are going to have to deal with. Um, if I am a statewide Republican trying to get people to donate to my campaign, and there are big flashy things on the national level also making those asks, um, I'm going to be worried that, that he's taking from that same base of donors. Mm. When it comes to regulation, is there very much? You mentioned how scammy this is. Is there any backlash or repercussions for people who behave in those sort of ways? No, not at all. And uh, grassroots fundraising is the wild west of American politics. You can uh, fundraise in other people's names without their consent. 
It's completely bizarre. And the mainstream political press in the United States does not treat fundraising communications from a campaign as real communications. So if Nancy Pelosi's fundraising team sends out an email that says, Nancy Pelosi here, I'm completely devastated that we've just lost the House before the election day. No one quotes Nancy Pelosi as saying that we lost the House before election day. They feel like obviously made up quotes, don't they? They feel like it's clearly someone from the team just pretending to be... Nancy Pelosi with some platitudes. Exactly. And and it must be that someday political reporters just decided that we're not going to treat these as real communications, which if they did, campaigns would no longer send these crazy missives to, to mm. millions of donors. Is that a part of a, another issue in the media ecosystem that maybe this doesn't get uncovered because reporters do rely on access to campaigns, so they don't want to piss these campaigns off, basically, by showing up how badly run their fundraising is? Yeah, I mean, I, I think when it comes to online political grassroots fundraising, everyone just kind of rolls their eyes and, and mm. just kind of sighs and, and moves on. Um, mm. It's seen as kind of a necessary evil, particularly for campaigns that are trying to aggressively hire staff and get ready to run a massive, long campaign cycle. Mm. Down the line, when they're spending this money, what key trends are you seeing in strategy? So currently, we're in the doldrums right now. We just concluded the the midterm elections in November. Mm. Um, But first, on the strategy front, I think there are a couple really exciting trends in digital politics Mm. to pay attention to. The Washington Post had an article about a month ago about President Biden's 2024 Mm. re-election campaign and how they're approaching the digital ecosystem and digital outreach to voters. They understand that it is more important to build networks of people beyond their own brand and accounts rather than just building up their own, say, Facebook page or their own accounts and really focusing on content organizing and relational organizing. And what I mean by that is asking folks with large amounts of followers to share their own reasons why they support President Biden or the Biden agenda, as opposed to just Biden saying that himself on his own page. And that's really smart. You've seen it in the White House. They've been bringing in these social media influencers to tout their agenda. And that's that's really different than how campaigns have been run historically. Hmm. Is it kind of copying from brands with this sort of influencer marketing, but moving that into politics? Exactly. The corporate space, corporate marketing space is typically, you know, five to 10 years ahead of politics. Um, You know, you're seeing campaigns on the left, at least start to leverage TikTok influencers and again, other people's brands to say nice things about their candidate or get folks to just turn out to vote. Mm -hmm. And then the other part on the strategy front, I mentioned broadcast television, but a lot of Democrats are starting to move their budgets towards streaming television services like Hulu and Roku. And that is going to grow dramatically in terms of the advertising share of the pie. Hmm. Are people going to be more engaged with that as well than they might be usual TV? Because if you go onto a streaming platform, you kind of really actively choose to watch a program in a way that cable TV, you just switch it on and see what it is. So could that be another reason that advertising might be more effective? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm a, I'm a millennial, maybe a geriatric millennial, but uh, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a cord cutter. I don't watch broadcast or cable television. Yeah. I watch TV on Hulu and all these different apps. Advertisers on those apps are able to more uh, cater their advertising towards my interests as well. And so it's mm. kind of a win-win for everyone. When it comes to what candidates are wanting to say to the wider public, what key messaging has been the focus lately? What was it in the midterms and what sort of 
building blocks do candidates seem to be forming in the run-up to 2024? So, For sure. As you can imagine, the country for several years has been incredibly polarized. And that polarization is kind of the foundation of our politics. Campaigns are, instead of prioritizing these little slivers of an imaginary swing independent voter, they're prioritizing talking to their base and making sure that they uh, turn out who they want to vote on election day. On the left and on the Democratic side, we really saw Democrats talk a lot about so-called MAGA extremism, like Trump extremism Mm. and the threat that extremist anti-democratic forces uh, play in our politics. Mm. On the right, we we saw Republicans continue to talk about culture war issues, social Mm. issues, uh, quote unquote, wokeness to fire up their own base. Throughout the midterms, of course, people were talking about inflation, people were talking about abortion and crime. Uh, All those issues had a role to play. But generally, sort of the extremism narrative on the left really um, helped fight Mm -hmm. back against a lot of these Republican candidates and and helped the Democrats have a much more successful election in November. Is it a problem for the Democrats that they're kind of relying on keep these guys out? as a campaign tactic, more so perhaps than get us in? It's too early to say. Unfortunately, the Republican Party has become, I don't want to like over-exaggerate here, but has become (laughs) somewhat of a cult of Trump. Even the non-Trump Republicans uh, on the Republican side, voting for Kevin McCarthy as speaker means that they're voting for someone who helped deny the results of the 2020 presidential election. So it's an existential threat to the country, and it is a definitional characteristic of the modern Republican Party. And so as long mm-hmm. as no one in the Republican Party is willing to stand up for truth, and and <laughs> I think it is a strong message that Democrats will continue to play. Mm-hmm. Obviously, voters want to hear about other things too. I think the economy is extremely important. Whether or not we go into a recession over the next year or two is very important. And what Democrats mm. are doing uh, to improve people's lives is really uh, critical. In terms of institutions that are facing an existential threat, uh, Twitter, what is the demise of Twitter at the moment and the way it's people are maybe moving away from it because of how they feel around the changes that are happening? How is that going to impact campaigning? Is it going to become less of a force than it once was? Yeah. for In terms of reaching actual voters, Twitter may not be the best platform, but what political campaigns rely on Twitter for is a lot of engagement with the press mm. and with elites who create these larger media narratives. Campaigns also use Twitter for grassroots fundraising. So a lot of base voters who are really interested in politics on the right or left spend time on Twitter retweeting their their team's stuff. And so it's a good place where a campaign can share, say, a launch video of their campaign and raise lots of money. Mm. Twitter has historically banned political ads, but because of their current financial <laughs> struggles, <laughs> they have brought political advertising back on the platform, which provides a small difference and change for campaigns to actually start advertising there again. Mm. I think there the value is is fundraising ads. You may see you may start to see a lot more political fundraising ads on Twitter um, from folks trying to reach members of their grassroots base. Overall, I think Twitter's demise uh, will be slow, and I don't think it currently is having a major impact on our politics, but could over the next couple of years. You spoke about TikTok earlier. Is there a 
dominant platform within the political space anymore. I mean, people in the UK seem to be moving to Mastodon, but I don't see that seeming to have any major impact at the moment. And then TikTok feels like something that is, you know, young people use it and a lot of people try to ignore it. Is there a a platform which is the place to be at the moment? No. And, and the way the internet works these days is that there's so many different places where so many different types of people live and good political campaigns, sophisticated political campaigns will know how to reach all these people in all these different places. TikTok is an extremely interesting part of our political social media diet nowadays because it's completely dominated by one party. Republican campaigns, because of their reluctance to work on a Chinese-owned platform, have completely abandoned it to the left, so Mm. have ceded the platform to Democrats. That means a lot of Democratic campaigns are using TikTok to reach younger voters, and in November, younger voters really turned out. I think uh, we saw John Fetterman, a senator from Pennsylvania, do a lot of innovative outreach on TikTok. Um, Something like 30 different statewide Democratic campaigns use the platform. And I think it's a really important outreach strategy, particularly for reaching younger voters. I know we're in a quiet period at the moment because the midterms have recently happened. But when it comes to this fundraising campaign cycle, does it ever seem to end? Is there ever a truly quiet period? And does that cause wider problems for politics as a whole in the US? I think we maybe got like one week of, of quiet spending in our politics before it picked back up. You know, whether we like it or not, the 2024 election has already begun. Um, even uh, campaigns who have not necessarily announced their candidacies yet, folks who may be taking on Donald Trump in the presidential primary in 2024, um, are already kind of under the radar advertising through different entities to try and build their lists. So no, Americans never get a break. Uh, Maybe the TV ads (laughs) stop for a little bit, um, but they will start back very soon. Kyle, well, I hope you get to have a little bit of a break at some point. Thank you so much for speaking to me today. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Listeners, if you enjoyed this podcast, remember you can back us on Patreon so we can keep making them. There's a link in the show notes or just search Bunker Patreon Podcast. This is Jacob Jarvis. Thank you for joining me for the Bunker USA. The Bunker was presented by Jacob Jarvis, produced by Jack Gerbertson, Alex Reese, with assistant production from Kasia Tomashevich. Lead producer is Jacob Jarvis, group editor Andrew Harrison, and audio production came from me, Robin Lieber. Theme tune is by Jade Bailey, and The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>